We take a single episode of a science fiction TV series and overanalyze it to within an inch of its life. This is the Fusion Patrol Podcast. Welcome to the discussion. Hello and welcome to a very, very, very special episode. It's the day of Fusion Patrol, or something like that anyway. Um, And I have with me tonight Ben. Good evening, Ben. Hello. And I have Simon. Hello. And that means... That we're in for it, trouble. We're in for trouble. It's only, <laughs> there's only so many stories that could be so big to encompass three hosts on Fusion Patrol, which is a technical feat, I might add. Um, <laughs> we are going to be talking about the 50th anniversary of Blake Sev- um Doctor Who. <laughs> 50th anniversary <laughs> of Doctor Who. The Day of the Doctor, starring Matt Smith as the... Current. Doctor and David Tennant as the Doctor minus one, and John Hurt as the Doctor minus, minus three. Three, two, three. three. Yes, two and a half. <laughs> so uh, we usually start these off with a summary, but because it's very timely and because it could be spoilers out there in the world, I'm just gonna you know really really short, uh, really short summary of this story. What? No spoilers? Well, I'm not saying no spoilers. I'm just. I'm just. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna line by line recite this one as I do with some episodes. I just want to say that that in the last days of the Time War, the Doctor steals the ultimate Gallifreyan weapon, the moment, and the ghost of Doctor's future shows him Doctor regretful and Doctor forgetful, in an effort to change his dastardly ways. And with that, I'm gonna. I'm gonna because we've got three people in there today. I'm going to start off, and I'm going to say, one, we've all seen it, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. yeah. And Three times, thank you. <laughs> oh, I've only seen it twice. I've only seen it twice, too. <laughs> but one of those was in three dimensions, so, you know. Yes, rub that one in. <laughs> yeah, grumble, grumble, Tomorrow, grumble. tomorrow I will have seen it in three dimensions. Uh, I'm just going to ask you, uh, right off the bat, on a scale of zero to ten. Oh, God, zero not being this bad. question. Yeah, I know. Zero to ten, zero with it being bad. See, would you like to go second, Ben? <laughs> We're first. Uh, how about third? You want to go third? Okay. On I really sc- don't want to answer this one. On a scale of zero to ten, Simon, zero being bad, ten being the best it could be, um, how, uh, how, what did you think? Uh, uh, I think, why would you even want to do that? And uh, <laughs> even if it were possible, um, I've, 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 gone pa- I've gone into the past and set my previous incarnations to work on calculating this one. And uh, even with that, I've had some difficulty. So <laughs> I'm I'm going to go for seven. Interesting. All right. Uh, and I will, since Ben wants to go last, I'm going to go with, uh, I went with gut feeling. Because if I think about it, the score changes. So I'm going also with a seven. Interesting. Um, wow. Uh, gut feeling or thinking about it, it pretty much comes up to be the same. I'm going to... I'm... Oh, God. Whole numbers, huh? <laughs> Damn it. Well, if you want to give us a, f- a fractional number, we can do that. But uh, but we will round. Well, I'm... Oh, boy. Then I'm I'm going to say... Oh, sh- okay. I- I'm going to round up. I'm going to say six. Okay. Okay. That's they're not that far apart, even if you want to say a five. I mean, we're not, we're not light years apart. We, haven't, we aren't here like at somebody with love and monsters and someone else with Inferno. You yeah. know? But I will say, I will say, 
Keith, of course, Keith watched it three times, and he saw it twice with me alone, and and uh, and then third time, you know, we, we watched it at your house, Eugene. I, I think I know what Keith's score was. Um, uh, I think it was probably no higher than a three. Really, that high? Oh, he really hated this. No, I mean, I thought it was lower based on some of the. Comments. Well, I imagine it's a two, but <laughs> you're being generous. Yeah, I'm. Be, I'm being very kind. He he liked very little of it. <laughs> This was a this was an interesting story um, from the standpoint of um, you know it, it was a celebratory episode. It really had to kind of it had a lot of things to do, and and Moffat really tried to do a lot of things. Now, not necessarily plot wise, but you know little threads. And I don't know, some of them were very successful in my mind, and some of them were very very maddening in my mind. So let's let's just uh, hit right into it then, Ben. Uh, we'll let you take uh, we'll let you take point. What's what's your initial um, uh, my initial thoughts, reaction reactions? Yeah, why? Where where do we come up at with uh, with a high five? <laughs> I think the the problem for me is that it felt like, and I think you kind of hit it right that Moffat was trying to really do a lot. I kind of wonder if maybe somewhere floating. Uh, along the desk of of the Grand Moff, that there, maybe there was a story for the Zygons someplace, and they just never got around to it. And they had this 50th thing, and clearly there was the idea of maybe wanting to uh, have some kind of an approach at telling the Time War. But then they also had this Zygon story, and then they kind of thought, well, you know, we, we, we do want something kind of big, so maybe we can shoehorn this Zygon story in here, tweak it a little bit here and there so that it kind of sort of dovetails, you know, maybe, oh, I know, I got a great idea, you know, maybe we can turn the Zygon into some sort of a morality play for the doctors to work with, and, and oh, I got a grand idea, how about this great little stunt of having the doctor hang from a TARDIS? We don't know why, but we'll figure it out. And it, it felt a lot like just putting the cart before the horse at times. And that's why I kind of, I couldn't give it as high a rating as I would have liked. Hmm. Simon? I think it, it certainly suffered from uh, having, having two masters, I suppose, in a way. And um, I, I have to say that I hugely enjoyed watching this episode. And I enjoyed re-watching it. And sometimes I don't necessarily want to come straight back to an episode particularly if the problems really bugged me whereas just just all all of the kind of little celebratory things and the performances in this were all things that I really enjoyed so I did like that I think there were inevitably going to be structural problems and I I, I kind of quite liked the way at least that it was set up the the, the structure of this but I, I think you put the, your, your finger on the problem, Eugene, when we were discussing this before and talking about the kind of time war aspect of it and the fact that the, the inevitably the war doctor would have to be redeemed in some way because it was a celebration episode. So you, you had two things going on here. The, the kind of t- time war story, the, the, the dipping back into that and, and telling that and the doing a celebration of, of Doctor Who. And it, I th- from the point of view of doing a celebration of Doctor Who, it really, really did it for me, because you know how sceptical I am about specials and multi-Doctor stories. Well, apart from maybe a couple of the, the Christmas stories, this is easily my favourite special, and easily the best multi-Doctor story. But I, I, I guess I kind of felt that on the, on the Time War story, and, and I'm still thinking about this, but... 
it it was almost as if it had to pull its punches because it had to have an upbeat ending. And I don't know whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, but certainly when I was watching it, I really enjoyed the first hour or so. And then just just as the, the ending was coming along, I found myself thinking about, well, do I agree with this or not? And I, I, I did kind of leave feeling a bit deflated, which is why the score wasn't higher. See, now, I, I, I mean, the two things that really stood out for me is that when I watched this episode, it, it felt so painfully, painfully obvious that it was written not with John Hurt, but with Christopher Eccleston in that role. Ooh. And, I, you know, it just, if, I bet that the script that they showed Christopher Eccleston was basically this script without having to add the extra convolution of making up an extra doctor in the, in the midst. And it would have redeemed the Eccleston doctor, um, but would have left him with his angst. And, and yeah, as, as we had discussed in the, in the earlier podcast, I thought they had to do something to turn the fatalism of the destruction of Gallifrey into something future, future-looking. Uh, I was surprised at how well I liked the solution that Moffat came up with, that from this point forward in Matt Smith's regeneration, he doesn't have to look back at the awful thing that he's done. He can look forward. We can get rid of that sickening Time Lord angst, and we can we can just deal with um, you know whatever he has to do. But at the same time, it's kind of weird that we had the that you know you have to go forget it. So we have to live through it anyway. So at least they didn't rewrite the Doctor's history, which in a way I wish they had because then we could explain John Hurt a lot better than than we do. So that's that's a great question. Uh, so they I kept wondering I. I when we get to that whole bit about so the time streams are not in sync, which is why they cannot retain their memories oh, yeah. when they go back. I mean, to me, that was I had a bit of a, a bit of an issue with that. So I kept thinking, so does that mean that as far as David Tennant is concerned, he thinks that the destruction still happened, yes. or in his time stream, did destruction really happen? That's a good question. It, you know, the question is, did it ever happen? And and that's a bit. And I do hate to say it because it's so childish, a bit timey wimey. Um, <laughs> um, I, I'm a I'm a big one for continuity, and you know, oh, oddly enough, after mm. here on BBC America, after they showed um, the, the the Day of the Doctor, they reran um, I think it's Last of the Time Lords. Oh, okay. so of course now I've got this big dilemma regarding. Um, okay, did that really happen? Did the Doctor really time loop the entire time war? Did um, did Gallifrey actually break out? Um, but if the time war didn't end that way, did that not happen? I mean, but the Doctor still thinks it happened. I mean, I mean, these are things that just really kind of gnaw at me. I, I that 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 was where I, would, I was mentioning the you know my gut reaction was I enjoyed it. I laughed. I I cheered when the thirteen Doctors showed up at the end. I was even mildly. Uh, impressed when Tom Baker's doctor showing up at the end. All, all of those things were like, I'm having fun. And I, you know, Ben and I, you and I sat in the same room and did watch it on one of the viewings. And I noticed you laughed a lot. I did. I but, mean, you know, on a gut I mean, reaction, yes, I did laugh. But I always, I always have to analyze the show at the same time. So my, and as you point out, the, you know, what happened when Eccleston first mentions destroying the Time Lords, I think he says he watched them burn. 
I believe he uses the word burn. They've, they've used it a couple times in the past. But by the time we get into the Tenet era, and I don't remember whether it was the last of the Time Lords or whether it was... Uh, Journey's uh, End, I think. Journey's it, End, when the Daleks escaped from the time loop, was the first time we heard that Gallifrey... Oh, no, no, that's one of our planets is... Uh, oh, shoot. I wasn't, I wasn't, um, it's somewhere in there. It's that, yeah, it's that it's, batch. Yeah, it's, it's where we say goodbye to Donna. Yeah, it's, it's in that batch, and um, we mentioned, oh, they're in the time loop, Dalek Thal or Sek or Tron or whatever it was, broke into the time bubble, got Davros Kyle. out, um, and then that... You know, that's really suddenly, oh, it's like they didn't really destroy them. They're just in a time loop in there devising a plan to use the master, which if he had burned them, well, then it would you Yeah, know, I just, it it does. It, it messes those stories up in the middle. And uh, it, 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 the, one, the one it seems to me it's got the greatest problems for is the end of time. Mm-hmm. But I can't bear where to Gallifrey watch it shows again up. Yeah. in order to see whether it really does. Because I think that's where the moment is first mentioned. Yes. I think the problem, if you think about it too hard, is that if the moment is the means by which Gallifrey and Scaro were burned in the first place, then how was it that he ever got to press the button? Because, you know, for first time round, what happens is he goes to his shed... Up pops the interface, shows him the future, and he yeah. never presses the button. So, but this is, I mean, this is a, a general timey wimey problem, isn't it? We we have a bit of a paradox. There yeah, is, there is no first time. Yeah, just yeah. It, that was the other question. So, if their memories are kind of um, uh, messed around a little bit and they've forgotten everything that happened, so does that mean that they will always have this? event where they all come together i mean matt smith sort of seems to suggest it when he sees the fez come through the time rift That's true, he seems he to remember so, so it kind of implies oh wait a minute i've done this before don't remember all the details or the outcome but i remember something like this happening before it kind of implies that this has always happened that maybe uh john hurt didn't push the button maybe he never pushed the button but he's meant to think that he did okay so i'll ask this question then because we want to make if we want to make trouble uh, if if Tenet cannot remember what happened in the event or this story because of the mixing of the time streams, does that also include the time when he was in Elizabethan England and Matt Smith was there? Because who was out of time sync there? Yeah, Matt Smith. Matt Smith was actually out of time sync at that point. And, and we could kind of argue that they never left that time because they didn't travel by TARDIS. That's a to good get point. Back to the the, the future. So we we uh, he explicitly says he doesn't remember that bit. So we know that at, at least from after the fez appears on the forest floor, he forgets he, it. He, he he's he's forgotten that much. That. Well, what about the and people I think who are this with him? Is a, have they forgotten it, or has he forgotten them? Yeah. The other thing that gets me is we need to remember uh, in Last of the Time Lords, the Doctor finally admits one other little bit of information as to why he threw the button, and that is not just to destroy the Daleks, but to destroy the Time Lords, because they had become unbelievably arrogant. This, this is actually mentioned in this story. There's a, there's a comment where they, when they walk into high command, the first time we see a Gallifrey, and they're walking into high command, and I forgot what the aide says to the general, or whatever we want to call him, and... The general, he says, shouldn't we inform the High Council or something like that? And High Command head guy says, the High Council have already put their own plans into motion to solve this and something like that. So Rassilon and the High Council are 
working this war independently of high command. Right. And I think what, the, what Moffat's trying to do is he's trying to humanize the Time Lords. Obviously, they've got children, they've got families, they've got, they've got uh, a market village in the 18th century or wherever. It's Renaissance. <laughs> it's it's Renaissance Gallifrey. Yeah. And the high command are just fighting a war and are even willing to go along with the doctor's final solution. But, but James Bond and, and the rest of the quote-unquote Time Lord High Council are out trying to destroy the universe, which does give us the opportunity, if they ever do find Gallifrey, to just to wipe out the High Council and we can eliminate that insanity because in End of Time, it's implied that every Time Lord is all ready to become gods and destroy time. So, If, if we were to nitpick at this further... And I'm not <laughs> oh, let's, let's do! <laughs> well, I'm not inclined to because I enjoy this a lot. But I was just thinking that previously, Scaro burned as well, didn't it? And yes, it did. not, not only did the Daleks get destroyed... But also they disappeared from history. The whole thing was time-locked. And I didn't quite understand how the Doctor's plan of making them shoot each other because Gallifrey disappeared would actually achieve that, that more ambitious end and therefore have the, the time-locked or time-looped, whatever it was, for them to go on later to rescue Davros from and, uh, and so on and so forth. Well, if we're going to nitpick this further, <laughs> let, me, let, me get, let me get on one last thing. And this is something that Keith and I really had a very lengthy discussion about. Now, if you really want to go into the whole concept of, you know, the whole theory of quantum mechanics, temporal mechanics advanced and all that. Advanced quantum mechanics. Yeah, advanced quantum mechanics. With a little TARDIS, TARDIS logo on the bottom of the cover. Um, if you time lock, time loop this entire war, it sort of implies that all of the casualties of war that uh, the other planets have been forced to suffer, like the home world of the Zygons and all that, it kind of implies that it never happened to them. Because if this, if this is a time war, I'd have to assume that this war is being fought on uh, in different eras simultaneously. The Daleks have the power of time. Time Lords have the power of time. This thing is being fought over uh, different um, eons and different eras of time and in an attempt to try and not just destroy each other, but uh, in an attempt to maybe kind of wipe out wipe out each other's uh, history, so to speak. I wonder what the tactics of time war would be. Well, I don't. It would have been fascinating. Well, I would have liked to have seen more of that. I, I think. I mean, I think Ben is quite right. And the, the the in the end of the world, there's the mention that only sort of beings at a higher level are aware of the Time Lord and and Dalek's disappearance. But the consequences are still felt because even in Rose, we get the fact that the Nestine consciousness has still lost its homeworld, even though the time war has been locked. So somehow some of the consequences are still felt that. that. And the Gelf. Oh, okay. And, and uh, yes, and the, and the Gelf, right, you know, right through to the Zygons in this story. So then what was the whole purpose of the time lock then? Just to uh, lock away the Time Lords and the Daleks? Presumably. I mean, if they, if they had time travel, it would be the only way to stop them going back and undoing the ending, I guess. I, I think, hmm. I think if, if we were speculating, I guess RTD probably meant to burn the Time Lords, and then when he decided he wanted to have a big old hope for bringing the Time Lords back into our universe, because that would be a fanny favorite thing, um, he had to rethink it from burned to time-looped, and that doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but it, it's the kind of explanation you get sometimes in Doctor Who. And I think Moffat just ignored it. 
I think, I mean, I, you know, it, it, we've talked about it before. I really don't like them breaking continuity, and I can understand why you might break continuity with a 1966 episode of Doctor Who, but I, I do find it more problematic when you break it with a, what, 2008, 2007 mm-hmm. episode of Doctor Who. Yeah, so more current. And see, the thing that gets me is in Night of the Doctor, what is it that the, the High Priestess and the Sisterhood of Karn, what is she telling the Doctor? She says the universe is, is burning. Mm-hmm. The entire universe, all of existence as we know it, is just standing right on the edge and ready to just completely go off and just go up in, in flames. That kind of implies that this, this battle really is being fought on so many different temporal levels that it's causing uh, uh, casualties all over the universe as we know it. Well, okay, so now you've, you've managed to uh, freeze Gallifrey in a moment of time, make it, looks like, make it look like it has disappeared. Oh, shoot, I'm giving away spoilers. Um, but, but alter the ending, shall we say. Mm. But, uh, so then what about all these casualties? I mean, these are, these are the kind of things that I couldn't help but think about as I was watching the show. It, it, is, it is difficult, and it, it was a tough ask, and a lot of the time I was able to forget it. When I was watching, it. I mean, I was, I enjoyed it, and I go, and so, so for a second, for for no, let's not not for a second. Let's take several minutes. Um, let's go with what did you enjoy? I mean, wh- what were the standout parts that you that you, you like? Because all of us have put it at least better than middling um, for the show, and I, you know, there were points that I thought were highlights. What what, what was uh, what stood out for you? Either one. Okay. Uh, okay. For me, uh, I I loved the. For the most part, I like the interplay between the doctors. Yes. And it's always, I mean, Matt Smith and David Tennant both have, are very high energy, so to watch them go back and forth with each other was a lot of fun. And then to see John Hurt's doctor, this, this old, crusty, almost curmudgeonly type doctor to just forever criticize them, I thought was highly enjoyable. I mean, many times he's saying things that I think we as audience members are thinking yes. to ourselves, Childish. which I enjoyed. What are, why are you pointing your screwdrivers? What are you going to do? Assemble a cabinet? <laughs> right. Where do you get phrases like tiny whiny, you know, so childish, things like I mean, that. Yeah. Right. So I, I loved the interplay between the three and I enjoyed, for the most part, I enjoyed really the story that the, when the episode was dealing more directly with the time war itself uh, on, on a personal level, uh, like when they were on Gallifrey uh, in that little hutch. Things like that. I mean, th- when when it wasn't so much dealing with the Zygons, I found the story to be a lot of fun to watch. Simon? I mean, I, yes, I would agree about the interplay, which surprised me a bit because that's the kind of thing I don't normally like in multi-Doctor stories. And I quite like the fact that John Hurt, in some way, although he clearly was his own kind of rather melancholy character, embodied that slight crotchetiness of, of the sort of the old school doctors like Hartnell and Pertwee that you got in the multi-doctor stories where they would sort of criticise their successors. And so, yeah, I enjoyed all of that. But, I mean, the, a number of other things, the, the well, for a start, the opening. I loved the opening with the original theme tune, and that just got a huge cheer yes. in the cinema. So I Ian love Chesterton that. on the Coal Hill School Board of Governors there sign, right? Yeah. Well, I yep. just, I, but I, I, yeah, the opening credit to the black and white uh, shot of the, the silhouette of the cop. Yes. Of the policeman as he's walking. I thought, oh, nice. 
I, I watched An Unearthly Child earlier in the evening, so <laughs> I thought, oh, they've put the wrong film in. It was, uh, no, it was that, that I really enjoyed. And all of those kind of things with, the, with the, all of the photographs around the place, just kind of hinting, hinting back to the past and the little nods like um, mentioning the unit dating ah. controversy. And, <laughs> I have that and, in my notes. And, and the, the kind of compulsory, uh, oh, you've redecorated. I don't, don't like, like it. it. That see that you have to have in a multi-doctor story. Apparently, um, obviously, uh, the other things that got big cheer in the cinema was when uh, Capaldi put in his appearance. Wow, did he look mean? Oh yeah, <laughs> and and Tom Baker, who I I I just I thought I mean I wasn't that 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 was the bit of the the episode I felt most uncertain about, but it was such a lovely moment, and there were there were there were gasps and. Uh, I, I mean, I think some of us knew it was coming because it had been spoiled, and I've no idea why he chose to reveal it. But uh, I think he chose to reveal it on on strategic plan. Day before, it's like, what? Tom Baker really is coming back? Maybe you, the old you mean doctor's you, in it. You, I think. You I think, think was... the BBC told him to say that the BBC yes. told him not to say. I think Moffat did. I'm uh, saying the BBC did. Moffat probably said, "Yay." Well, considering that uh, the fans before, were, if you get... said it. I think the fans were giving uh, a lot of criticism towards Moffat for not including older doctors. I mean, I can sort of understand why, because they don't exactly look the part. And I was a little concerned with how they were going to get Tom Baker's doctor to show up, but I would admit, the manner in which it was done, I thought was brilliant. And it set us yes. up for the future, didn't it? Absolutely. Said. We now know that even though even the Time Lords think that the doctor has only 13 gen- regenerations, there is something more in the future for him, probably. Assuming he doesn't die at Trenzalore at Christmas. No, no look, here's something. This is not exactly a criticism. I, um, and I echo all your thoughts on the stuff that, that you enjoyed. I even liked the opening with a helicopter. I mean, it made no sense, but it was kind of kind of bondy and cool. It was sort of a Pertwee kind of thing, um, except for the comedy bits. But um, haven't we seen this before, that, that Mr. Moffat has a tendency to write his big, big stories being... Destiny says this is what has to happen. It's all about me building up to the destiny that I cannot avoid and then cheating it at the end. That's um, the Doctor's yes. um, uh, Wedding of River Song. It's, um, well, it's half of them. <laughs> Feels I, like yeah, I think my biggest, my biggest problem with this episode, and like I say, I'm still thinking about it, is the fact that it does have at the heart of it this thing that we've we've known about for since the show came back that the doctor did commit this act of genocide and that's something that is obviously new and something we've had to come to live with but something that the point was made again and again that 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 is what has made the doctor who he is the 10th doctor and the 11th doctor assuming we've still got that numbering um <laughs> Have been made so. men have been made the men they are by by what happened on that day, and then and and then alongside that we were we were getting the the kind of really strong it it, it somehow he has been easier to forget this in the past, but the kind of parallels with that act with things with with what that actually means and the the, the fact they kept coming back to the children and thinking about you know this is like. Nagasaki or mm-hmm. or Dresden or or whatever. This is a really terrible war crime well, it, that we are talking about. It is because 
I'm sorry, I just interrupt here, but I mean, in the because of the end of time, we are shown the Time Lords as a unified group of megalomaniac killers that wanted to wipe out all reality. There's no, there's no. Why is the Doctor whining about that? He's we're not. He's even now not whining about wiping out the Daleks. The Time Lords and the Daleks were just as bad. So, when when Russell T Davies included that, basically all of the the angst that the Doctor has been showing about oh I had to wipe out my whole planet should have been erased in the minds of the audience. It's like he did the right thing. There's there's unquestionably he did the right thing. And yet David Tennant's Doctor keeps revisiting it because if you remember um, with the I can't remember the name of the serial. It was the one. It was our farewell to Donna Noble, and there was the. the- Stolen Planet and Journey's Stolen, End. Yeah, the Journey's, yes, End. Journey's End. Then we, there's the, uh, the the Doctor clone, shall we say, who manages to wipe out all of the Daleks. And what does what does Doctor Proper actually say? He says, you know, you're too dangerous. You just wiped out an entire species. I, I can't let you loose. I have to exile you. So and, he's and... still carrying that whole thing about wiping out an entire species, whether it's Time Lords or Daleks. I mean, he's still got that weight that he's carrying with him like a ball and chain. Yeah, <laughs> um, and 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 it, and it is. A, I mean, it is one of the reasons that I'm coming. I mean, the the reason I felt that the, it was a little bit of a cheat was that ultimately this was set up as being a choice between either you kill over two billion innocent Gallifreyan children, or the entire universe burn. And in a way, you can see why all three doctors said there's no choice. But but there was. That, yeah, it, it turns out there is a that there is a way out, which is which is the which is the kind of cheat when it comes down to it. At the same time, Moffat has been on this exploration of the question: Who is the Doctor? Doctor Who? And we've seen this in the past because we've had the Doctor asking, "Does he have this right in Genesis as a Dalek?" And he's concluded, "No." And we've seen it since in in the Parting of the Ways when he's faced with once again having to defeat the Daleks by committing genocide and and wiping out the human population of Earth. And he refuses to do it then as well. So there's a sense that this act that has happened during the Time War that we haven't seen is something that is very much not the Doctor. And I think that's that's what Moffat wanted to address in this. And that's maybe the mitigation for why that that kind of that trick he pulls in there he can get away with it so what did you think about the i alluded to it in my uber brief uh, overview of the story that this was kind of a variation of a christmas carol that it, i'm going to show you i'm going to show you some future reality we don't go in the past but uh, to try to mend your ways and or it, it's a wonderful life Oh, yeah, War, It's a Wonderful Life. And yet, in the end, what it does is the Doctor looks at himself in the future and says, well, I'm a better man for this, so I better go do it. I was surprised by that. Great uh, men are forged in fire. It is the privilege of lesser men to light the flame. Yes. And yet, you know, the Doctors come back, the other Doctors come back and say, we didn't have any choice. We'll do it again to show you. So, I, I, I just... I don't know how I feel about that. I, I'm surprised. I mean, was that what the moment was trying to do? Was the moment trying to no. show to bring his resolve up, or was the moment trying to do it to break break his resolve down to use it? I can't I, tell. I, I think she was breaking his resolve down. Well, yeah. In in the end, obviously, 
eventually she did yeah <laughs> but but, it, but um, i i mean I, th- I think that that was what she was trying to do i think i think he was quite resolute about the action he was going to take and it 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 took both both of his future selves were willing to collude with it and it took the companion to kind of call him out on it which is part of why i think it's important the the, the the companion's role has been seen important when we see William Hartnell early on trying to or or, or apparently threatening to bean a innocent caveman with a rock it's it's the kind of human influence of the of the companions he's had or if not human uh, some other race but the influence of the companions that he's had that has in some way helped him to identify with people and try to do the right thing and and that there's the answer to who, to who is the doctor, uh, you know. Besides the the Terence Dix quote, "Never cruel, never cowardly," it, it's that better to fail trying to do the right thing than to succeed doing the wrong thing. Hmm. No easy answers in this episode, actually, which is a good thing. No, the the doc the doctor has made mistakes, but the doctor. One of the things about the doctor is his intentions are good. But ultimately, it was Clara's tears that saved the Time Lords. Just a little, little tear. <laughs> well, we've seen that kind of thing before. I mean, when uh, with uh, the uh, the Christmas episode where we had Donna show up for the first time, she's the one who stops the Doctor from killing whatever that the the the, the Spider Woman, whatever she was. Her, I can't remember what what, where her, what her name was, but. The doctor was ready to completely kill her and all her children, and it was Donna who stopped him. It always seems to be the companion that reins the doctor back in from going completely over the edge uh, with eliminating his enemy. True. And I guess it's it's been true all along. As, as Simon pointed out, even an unearthly child, it was the people who stopped him from, from bashing the caveman in. But, but I think, you know, with regards to Tenet's uh, excesses, a lot of people look back on that era and say that was the defining characteristic of that doctor was that that uh, hubris, I guess, or whatever it, we want to call it on his part that led him to change time in the waters of Mars and and ultimately led to his downfall. And I don't I don't necessarily agree that that was a master plan by any stretch of the imagination. I think it just kind of grew up organically out of some of the stories they wrote, but. Um, it, it, it's, it certainly typified the Time Lord arrogance that the, that the doctor, that David Tennant's doctor, was uh, uh, complaining against. And yet, uh, we have heard many times, both from actors who played the doctor, uh, Russell T. Davies, uh, uh, many people, that the doctor is the moral influence that makes people change. Um, that he guides what we ought to be and... It raises the others to that level. I mean, they've all said that that's the feature of the Doctor, and yet here we have these stories where it's really the companion that that teaches the Doctor. So basically, no one has a clear idea. Or it's like a chemical reaction where you need both ingredients in order for the reaction to take place. True. Can I mention one other? Oh, I was going to say, can I mention one other thing that I did like since we did? I don't want this to be a complete uh, criticism and bashing of of this show. I mean, there there was one other thing that I really liked a lot. I know that there's been some mild criticism of this, but this is, I think, one of Moffat's greatest strengths is when he does get a little tiny whiny 
and he does that regarding the portrait of Gallifrey Falls. How, uh, where at the very beginning of the episode, towards the beginning, we see uh, Kate Stewart says, oh, you have to see this, and she takes the doctor over to, I guess, what's going to be the undergallery. And yet, at that very moment, we see um, the, the male assistant, and he gets a phone call. And, we don't, and then we get to see that pay off mm-hmm. later. And it's those little kinds of things, those little things that I think Moffat is really a genius at. He's done that a number of times in, in big critical episodes where he can get a little timey-wimey, but he manages to tie it up in such a nice and tidy way that all it can do is just amuse the viewer. And I found it highly enjoyable to see how that paid off. Yes. A little, a little timey-wimey, it's like a little Vegemite. A little goes a long way. Um <laughs> Oh, were you tempted in that scene to screen cap the uh, the doctor's phone number and give him a ring? Cause yeah. There I was. <laughs> yeah. Also, also on telephones, I noticed that Kate Stewart has the same ringtone that I've got, which I'm rather annoyed about. She oh no! Me. Well, the TARDIS grown. The TARDIS grown. Yeah, yeah. I, I have to say, was... Kate, Kate Stewart was another highlight for me. I really enjoyed uh, seeing her back. And the Ravens. I love. Oh yeah, the tell Malcolm. <laughs> yeah, the Ravens are looking a bit sluggish. Tell Malcolm they need new batteries. Yeah, she was really good. She was really good, and and apparently, unlike unlike perhaps others, um, I I didn't mind the parallel Zygon story. Really, um, I was kind of pleased. You know, when you saw the trailers, um, it looked like uh, the eleventh. We'll call him the eleventh. Matt Smith's doctor. Might as well. <sighs> Matt Smith's doctor will. I think people are just sick of him calling him ten and eleven. I have to admit, I do find that a little. I do it myself from time to time, but because it's very shorthand. But I do, I do find that a little annoying. I, I would never call, call it sand shoes. Uh, yeah, sand shoes. Would be yeah. sand shoes and sand chins. Sand shoes and chins. Yeah. Or or, or dicky bow tie. Dicky bow. Uh, <laughs> I um, can't remember what I was saying. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> hey, you're talking about the Zygons. Oh, the Zygon gamut. Oh, the fact that when you look in the trailers, uh, it looks like. 11 is doing one story and it actually looks like 10 is doing a different story and kind of almost like that's what they got sucked out of time to do this other story. And yet it was one, it was one continuous story because the moment is actually manipulating things so that Dr. Nine sees the Zygon story. I mean, it's, it's not just an incidental. It really is. She's building up to do that to him. So Yes, arguing and, that it's a you know it's kind of a heavy-handed parallel. It's it it actually isn't a heavy-handed parallel in terms of bad. I mean, it might be in terms of bad story, but in terms of storytelling, but it's a very deliberate act of the moment to put him at that spot in time. I don't deny that. I just didn't like the way it was done. It, it doesn't. I mean, there's bits of it that don't make a whole lot of sense, like the Zygons having to invade Earth and wait. In sta- you know, how do they get out of stasis? Are they in stasis or are they not in stasis? What? Well, they presumably set some sort of alarm clock, one imagines. Yeah, that's, 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 that's the other two, two things about the Zygons. Or, one, I thought that they required machinery to be able to shapeshift. I mean, it's been a long time since I've seen Terror of the Zygons, so I don't fully remember. They, they but didn't can... they need some kind of machinery to help them do that? Aside from just having, you know, like like we saw, Kate was hooked up to some kind of uh, tentacle thing in order for the 
the shapeshifter to be able to refresh the image and, and all that. But I thought the, the Zygon itself needed something to do the initial shape change with. It's not been long since I've seen it. And the only person that we see getting copied, we actually see them, you know, from not being a copy to being a copy is Harry Sullivan. And he's already secured in the machine when the Zygon copies him. But I don't know. I don't. I mean, they don't. They do say that you're exactly right. They do say that we need to refresh the body print. So they can't destroy the people. They have to keep but them. What's the purpose of the machine? Is it is it to help that refreshing process, or is it simply to keep them prisoner and on sort of life support while they use their their body print? Good question. Because uh, the Zygon copy of uh, Kate uh, Kate Stewart when. Uh, Clara asks, well, why are those two there? Oh, they're probably disposed of the humans. Oh, dear. I do seem to have gotten lost in the part. It's it, it just like, oh, so maybe you don't need the humans? Uh, they don't and, need and them in the machine. I guess not. Well, no, they don't. We know that from Terror of the Zygons because the doctor frees all the other people, and including the, the, the Earl or the Count or whatever it was, and the Laird of the Manor, and he's still copying him a few hours later. At the uh, at the summit, even after he's been released from the machine and the spaceship has been blown up, so at, at some point they both were there, and the and the um, the Duke that was it is uh, free free and out and about. So it is, I don't know, but the it, other, it's not a hundred percent mechanical. The other question that I had was how the Zygons managed to, shall we say, sleep until they felt Earth was ready for them to invade. A genius manner, uh, very clever. Uh, the question that I had is, were they conscious the entire time they were in that stasis? I don't think they could have been. So how did they break out? passes at a different speed. That could be that. So I, I think ha- Simon's probably right. He said uh, it could be some sort of alarm clock. It could have been built into the external to wake them up somehow. But, I mean, that's... That's a good as explanation as any, but yeah, that does bother me. If it's in stasis, it's in stasis. I mean, it's the same thing. You know, the 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 solution the doctors had in order to get into the the black archive. Same thing. How did they get into that painting? Well, yeah, from that far of a distance, and then how how were they aware while they were in the painting to be able to effect an escape? I well, mean, these are, these are things that, I mean... It, alarm it was, clock oh, again. God, I knew what day I, it was. It, I mean, it looked great. I was watching. I'm thinking, ooh, that's enormously clever. But... But. Yeah, that's what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to think enormously clever and then not say, but. I couldn't help. Do you know what I did? I would say <laughs> that's enormously clever. Hey, that was clearly shot for 3D. Oh, that's true, too. Yeah. <laughs> Dalek admit, smashing so, out of the picture. The, the Of course, the pictures themselves. The, yeah, how did that? how did that look, Simon? I, I was actually quite impressed by it all. I, I mean, I've never seen 3D before, and this may have been a mistake because I did spend a certain amount of the beginning of the film kind of um, looking at the 3D effects when I ought to have probably been more focused on the actual story. But um, but no, I, I enjoyed it a lot. And, and in the cinema, as well as getting a little um, preamble for, on cinema etiquette from Strax, we also had an introduction from uh, Matt Smith and David Tennant when they switched on the 3D with their sonic screwdriver. And David Tennant did warn us that things could protrude more in 3D, so we should look out for the chin. <laughs> <laughs> I don't forget that. 
I hope we get that. Um, there were also a couple of, I was quite surprised, a couple of trailers that were like doing special trailers in honour of Doctor Who, one of which had, uh, for Anchorman 2, had Ron Burgundy um, saying, who is David Capaldi's new Doctor? Oh. David Capaldi is the new Doctor Who, that sentence doesn't make sense. You know, I think I saw somebody on Facebook say that they saw a trailer for Day of the Doctor in a theater before um, Catching Fire. Huh. So apparently there was a little more, um, which just I think just came out Friday. So apparently there was a little more uh, advertisements for this than I thought. Because I thought it was just basically fans had to know about it and find the website. And uh, in, in this country, anyway, I know in England it probably would billboards and stuff. But have you ever heard of... Uh, John Rawls, uh, and, oh, book, yes. and the Theory of Justice, which is a book he wrote in like nineteen seventy-one. The Veil of Ignorance. The Veil of Ignorance. It's a theory behind negotiations. They they kind of skimmed over it in, in the episode, so you could be forgiven to have just said, "Well, that's kind of gobbledygook." But but the bottom line is is that if you could take two parties in a negotiation, two or more parties in a negotiation, and you could completely make them ignorant of their own self-interests, therefore their own identity. They they then sympathize with the other side more because they don't know which side they're on. And so, in theory, according to his, this work, you would come up with fair negotiating techniques. And, of course, I, obviously it's never been tested in any meaningful way um, that I could, could imagine. I think it's more of a thought experiment. But uh, it's interesting that the doctor tried it. It's unfortunate that they have a stupid emitter that makes people forget they're in the Black Archive <laughs> every day. <laughs> Like, like yeah. the guard. Oh, he's actually been here 10 years, but he thinks it's his first day. Isn't that funny? I bet that's really funny when he goes home to the wife. Yeah. <laughs> I was thinking the same thing. So, well, oh, I've only been here one day. Good God. Why do I look like I'm 10 years older when I see myself in the mirror? <laughs> but, um, I, I mean, I, I did uh, a certain amount of political philosophy as part of my undergrad. So I was thinking that with regard to that scene, I see that io9 have done a whole post about how this this uh, theory of the veil of ignorance underpins the whole episode, which I think is maybe stretching it um, beyond uh, where it actually has a parallel here. Oh darn! They got they beat me to it. <laughs> I fear I fear oh, so. Yeah. Darn it! I, see, I've avoided reading almost anything uh, anything this morning. Well, so, I, I, we I I was I was just uh, taken. I saw the post in my feed, and I was just taken by the title. Because it had John Rawls in the title, I thought, oh, I'm not necessarily expecting anyone else to have spotted that. But not only had had you, they had as well. So there's three people. Wait, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, the other one that really seemed obvious to me, or felt obvious to me, could be totally wrong. We'll find out. I don't think there was an original note of music in that entire episode. I think everything we heard was played from older Murray Gold scores. And I know, Ben, you watched it on BBC America. Simon, right. you saw it in the theater. I watched it on the BBC on iPlayer. And they tweeted out, typically they're very quick about getting stuff up on replay on the iPlayer after the after the episode airs. You know, if it's a popular show or it's a big profile show, like, I'm, I'll just say it, like Atlantis, um, they probably have them on replay after the episode's live or after the episode's aired, within an hour or less, sometimes less, um, they tweeted, we aren't going to have Doctor Who available immediately after the airing. 
and eventually it came out. It was because of security concerns. They didn't want to release a copy to the iPlayer folks so that they couldn't steal it and post it on the Internet early, which I assume that all their employees are criminals, and that's why they, they thought that was going to happen. I wonder if maybe Murray Gold wasn't allowed to have a copy either. <laughs> I really do. I, I mean, I, so who this... put together the score? Well, I don't know who put it together, but it's obviously Murray's music, or maybe they just let him in at the last minute and said, okay, Murray, we'll lock you in the room here a day before the episode, or what? <laughs> just use your work you've got on the computer and go. You know, no time to record. Would the, the, you know, the orchestra would have seen it, probably. Isn't that the way they usually do it? They're usually playing it on the screen? Well, the, the conductor usually sees it. They don't. But it's behind them. It's behind them, but they're not looking. They're busy looking at their score. Mm-hmm. But, but then that means a copy would be and out And even then, the it's, 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 pro- it's possible that they could have set up just a private little uh, TV monitor for only him to look at that they couldn't see if they wanted to actually record a score. I mean, I've seen it done. Uh, it just it, it did feel like we were rehashing a lot of stuff in it. Not but that it was I, not that I, it was bad. I mean, no, I, it was, I, I thought it, I thought the music was rather good. The only reservation I had was that I thought I am the Doctor got overused, particularly as it's specifically the um, Chinny Doctor's theme, and he obviously wasn't the only Doctor around. Um, but but apart from that, I, I thought the music worked well, even if it was. And and I didn't detect any newly composed cues in there. I think it it was all stuff I recognised. It's you know interesting if you um, if you have the series seven soundtrack, uh, there, it's very light on the old cues. It's like a double album, and there's very little "I Am the Doctor" in there or anything like that. It's all new stuff. It's very obviously uh, not the, the not the retreads of the the usual stuff. So. Uh, that's why it kind of stood out for me is I've just been listening to the series seven soundtrack and thinking, yeah, Murray's really kind of um, branching out and doing different stuff. And then this one was back, the old unit theme, the old, I am the doctor theme, of course, Clara's theme. And uh, we've totally not mentioned uh, Billy Piper. That was interesting. I got to admit, I wasn't quite sure what to think about uh, how she was going to be used. Uh, the method that she was brought in at, at my, you talk about gut reactions. My first gut reaction on her was, ooh, I don't like what they're doing. Oh, oh, but wait, oh, that's clever. And there was no but. I just ended up uh, with how she finally got used in this as, that's clever. I, I, I have to say, I can't remember if I mentioned this in a previous podcast, but I was worried about how the continuity would work if the 10th doctor, uh, sorry, if Sanchez was taken with Rose from his timeline, as I assumed he would be because Billy Piper was in it, um, and yet later on when he's travelling with Martha, he hasn't met Queen Elizabeth before, even though she knows him. So I couldn't see how that was going to work. Now, obviously, in retrospect, we know that actually Sanchez was taken from post-Waters of Mars, and so the Queen Elizabeth continuity worked perfectly. Using Billy Piper in this, I mean, I thought she was absolutely wonderful in it so it it was terrific i mean like ben it totally worked for me no buts yeah i i think it worked for me but i i i think it's still probably a hold back to that was going to be nine proper nine not not new nine so uh, did, i mean story. even though she would have still been a companion from his com- future she would have been a companion or she could have been his companion I mean, well no she could have because at that point but you know, who else would they have I'm, picked for nine you know, who, what other companion could they have pulled out and, and shown up 
for the audience other than well, Billy they, Piper. So they didn't I, pull out a companion for for Sand Shoes, right? I, I'm interested in whether I mean you obviously think it would have worked with nine in place of the War Doctor. You think? Oh, that's I think how John Hurt's was, a much it better was originally actor, but written. I think so. Would it? Would it? Would it? Would it have been as good? In a way, no, because no. I think John Hurt was much better than Christopher Eccleston. No, and this is yeah, we've we've talked about this before. Christopher Eccleston didn't do a very good job as the Doctor, and uh, but Christopher Eccleston is a pretty good actor, so maybe um, you know this might have actually worked for him. But it is pretty hard to uh, put him on par with John Hurt, who who did a. a an excellent job. So I, I don't know. I, I don't I'm, know. I mean, we discussed this last night after we saw it at your house, and my my big problem with Eccleston is that he's and granted, maybe this is the way he was directed. If Russell already had an idea as to what had happened in Doctor Who continuity, but he always came across as very emo. Now maybe he could have managed to pull something that was more grisly, uh, more. Maybe not bitter, but um, I, I don't know, so just some kind of a different emotional source he, he, for he, the sake of this. If 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 this is what they they wanted uh, Eccleston to do originally, if, you know, if this uh, role was originally meant to be for him. But if they had pulled Eccleston from his time stream the moment before he pushed the button, he wouldn't be emo doctor. Could he be any? But uh, that's what I wonder. Yeah, what was Can he? Eccleston be anything other than emo doctor? As an actor, I think Christopher Eccleston could be. So they could have they could have written him as completely different, and or not completely different, but significantly different, and then said, you know, subsequent to this point, you're kind of that damaged, um, loopy uh, doctor. So, you know, I, I'm not I've... saying that I'm not saying that they just you know wrote out Eccleston and wrote in Hurt. Obviously, they had to make changes to the script. And, and possibly to the way they brought them together. But, but just from the structure overall, that we've always assumed that, that Eccleston was the Time War Doctor, or eight, um, but for a three-doctor story, if you will, um, you know, maybe, you know, maybe if they could have gotten Eccleston, they would have brought in eight and done it. But I, and, well, and I, I've, got, doctors, I've, but. I've got two things. I mean, one, one is I can't imagine this working with the ninth doctor in place of the war or i can't imagine it working without the war doctor or with the war doctor being the same person as eccleston's doctor so i think i mean like you say it could have changed quite a bit and and that makes sense i did think about how i would i've got a soft spot for mcgann's doctor i did think about how it would have worked if he had been the doctor pressing the button in this i mean in my mind Eccleston has regenerated just before Rose. He looks in the mirror and he sees his ears for the first time. But I, I would have quite liked to see McGann do it, but I just really love John Hurt in this. I thought it was fantastic. Uh, and the fact that we did get Eccleston's regeneration into Hurt, and now we've seen Hurt's regeneration into, into Eccleston, completing the, the line and, and filling in that gap, that whole thing now just feels to me like it really works. And I, I would agree that even though maybe this was originally written for Eccleston, to be perfectly honest, I think it really works a lot better with John Hurt. He really does give, he adds, that, that, that old grizzly guy uh, really adds a lot of gravitas to the part. 
I mean, we, we don't get a, a real Hawks good sense of... Hawks as well. Yeah, but yeah, we don't get a real good sense of... I mean, we know that he's been fighting the war a long time. We know that when he regenerates uh, at the end of Night of the Doctor, he's a much younger John Hurt. Yeah, so we know that he's been problem. fighting. We know, well, we know that he's been. He he does say that he'd been fighting the war for a long time. Kind of curious. I I like to know what he had been doing, but that's inconsequential. Okay. To to have him, you know, the, this this crusty old guy, then to regenerate into emo doctor, as I like to refer to him. To me, it really. I I think it works. I I I can't see. Regardless of how Eccleston might have played the part, I really can't see how he could have done justice to the War Doctor, or or, or at least the, the, the Doctor during the time uh, during the Time War. I don't see how he could have done it anywhere as good a justice as what John Hurt was able to give us. Yeah, ha- yeah, hard to say. Um, I, I would be I'd be willing to accept the possibility that Christopher Eccleston could turn in a performance given the right script, but. You know, we'll, we'll never know because, in the words of David Tennant, not coming back for the anniversary special would be a bit churlish. Um, <laughs> it, uh, is a, it is a shame he didn't come back, even if just for the scene where Just to stand there and regenerate. Exactly, exactly. Why couldn't but, they use but, their waxwork figure for him there or his photograph or anything? I mean, all they had to do <laughs> was to, to show us enough of that face changing, but we don't see any of that in this one. Oh, we, we, do, we do get his face but only for a split second during the regeneration during the regeneration yeah, just, you get a I, hint of it i thought they might have pulled it from parting of the ways but i've rewatched the parting of the ways regeneration and you don't see his face in the, in the yellow light so they've somehow no i i think they they, they they called it from another episode uh maybe the first time we see the slitheen or something but where he's looking up and they just blurred it right in with computer work yeah hmm. So you only get just a tiny, tiny hint of it at the very end. It's so tiny, I didn't see it when I watched that piece three or four times on the iPad this morning. Because it's, it's up in iTunes now. Anyway, um, <laughs> Maybe you have to see it in 3D, I don't know. Maybe, maybe, maybe I saw, 3D would look more realistic. Yeah, I, I caught it the but, first viewing on our television. Yeah. Um, so the, I was the, looking the, for it, but didn't see it. So. The, the John Hurt Doctor obviously has been around for a while, and That's I enjoyed him so much that I'm distinctly looking forward to when Big Finish get the license to produce audios. We'll get the oh, you think the, the war the War Doctor Chronicles, uh, starring John Hurt and Derek Jacobi. It's going to be eight. So here's oh, that'd be good. So here's the problem. <laughs> here's the problem in my mind. Um, Colin Baker's Doctor, eight hundred ish years old oh no not the aging thing the aging oh, thing yes God. i'm going to do the aging thing um he's, eccleston's he's, doctor he's... 900 tenet is according to this 400 years younger than um um smith despite despite <clears throat> telling the rabbit that he's 904 well 903 i think is the age he he was in um voyage of the aliens Down. of london he's nine he's 900 He's nine hundred. He's, he's, he's just three in Voyage of the Damned. In Voyage of the Damned, then maybe he's nine hundred and two or one. He, he talks says about nine hundred years of phone box travel in the Doctor Dances or the Empty Child. Eccles at, at at the when the the Slovene came to Earth and they're standing on top of the roof with Rose. He tells her his exact age, just as the spaceship is flying over. He says, "I'm nine hundred and one, two, three, but it's a nine oh something number." And he tells her his age. And so Tenet is what we see is what we get. He ages along with the TV show. Then Matt Smith has that multi-hundred-year gap 
when he leaves Amy and Rory behind for a while and comes back. Well, how old was he when we see, oh God, I hate to refer to the impossible astronaut. 900 some years old last time we saw you. Something like that. And well, because, because there's there's the, the much older Doctor who is about to get shot. That's the one we're seeing now. Right. But okay. how old was the Doctor that came out of the bathroom? 900 and some. She she asked him that when he was, he said. Right. I, I know. I, yeah. And I, I just saw that the other day. I just just trying one you know trying to get a sense of how old he was you know trying to put this timeline together. Okay, but that's not what I'm actually trying to put together. Oh, uh, that's actually not what I'm trying to put together. Um, somewhere there's about a hundred years difference between say McGann and the end of the War Doctor, so he could be a hundred years. He could have been the War Doctor for a hundred years almost easily, at least seventy five or so. Okay, and he started young and he looks old. Matt Smith started young. Aged 400 years. Looks young. No aging. That's what war does to you. Ah, is that what that is? <laughs> See, so why didn't they just make him an old-looking doctor to begin with when they regenerated him with Paul McGann? Well, because Paul McGann's too. doctor wasn't fighting the war. I'm not convinced. Well, but, you know, the other thing is Tom Baker aged quite a bit, too, during his time as the doctor. It kind of looks like they age... Yeah, about 300 years. <clears throat> Actually, yeah, he does keep kind of jumping, jumping the years up a bit. Um, anyway, I, did, was... I didn't have a problem with it at all. I mean, the the, the aging, you know, however old uh, the war doctor might have been, how many years he lived in that in that body, you know, none of that that did not bother me in the slightest bit. And who knows? Maybe that's a result of one of the uh, one of the the bad weapons that got used. I mean, we have no idea what the heck he was doing during that entire time. Uh, he was the war doctor. What kind of weapons maybe did he, uh, did he pull out from, what was that, the, the Rassilon Vault or what, what did they called it? The Omega Vault. The, the Omega Vault. Yeah, the Omega Vault. Yes, the Omega Vault. Um, what kind of, you know, maybe there was something there that uh, had a rather bad side effect. Yeah, why wasn't the moment properly named in Gallifrey in technology terms? The moment of Omega, the moment of Rassilon, <laughs> the, the moment of whatever, I mean... We- we did have a lot of Omega mentions, which is going to bring me back to my Omega conspiracy <laughs> theory. I think that's building up to something still. He'll be and? at Trenzalore. Omega will be at Trenzalore. Oh, dear God. Uh, yes. <laughs> I, I just so hope that maybe after the Christmas special, maybe they'll go to Trenzalore, maybe we'll end it, and maybe we'll never have to listen to this whole, oh, darn, it's my future is predestined BS anymore. I am kind of tired of that. I don't like that storyline. The, it's, I don't know. It just, it feels, well, every it, one of them feels like a cheat, basically. You set it up as being the impossible, the impossible future to break, and then every and then time they break you it. break it. And speaking of breaking things, okay, ignoring the end of time and all those things that they broke. I'm sorry, uh, what happened in the name of the Doctor? What, what, what's going on there? How did they get out of his time stream? How did the Doctor manage to hide Clara from an actual time stream, not not my memories, but my actual path through time. How is it that the War Doctor was never in there? Um, why does this feel remarkably like Moffat had to go, oh, I wish I hadn't written that. I'll just ignore it and go on. I really do not like his use of setting up a story to set up the next story and then basically forgetting it. The next episode through, I really, really don't like that. He does, I didn't he like does, name of the he, re, he refers back to it, so it's not it's not gone. But 
sort he, of. In fairness, at the time, he did say, I'm not setting this up to be a two-part story. You won't get a resolution to this in Day of the Doctor. But we will we'll never get a resolution to it. How did he get her out of his time stream? I don't think it's fair to end it that way. <laughs> in that case. Well, I assume he just carried her out. But... <laughs> I yeah, and I just and I the thing is, the thing is I watched that that aired before uh, Day of the Doctor yesterday on BBC America and, and I just watched it and I just shook my head and thought oh god I really hate this ending. But I, anyway, um, I think they were hoping that the people would be so wowed by oh my god John Hurt another Doctor and then and completely forget the fact that uh, wait a minute. Dr. Clara, you're stuck in, in the Doctor's own time stream, which to me, that alone felt like just a huge conundrum, but oh well. Yeah. To me, the highlight of the day, the 50th anniversary, hands down, no uh, no doubt what about it was the five-ish Five Doctor's, Doctors reboot. reboot. Yeah. Brilliant. <laughs> Brilliant. It was superb. Um, just absolutely the highlight. And we got our Doctors back. And I know it was supposedly written by Peter Davison, and I, I shouldn't even use the word supposedly. It was credited to Peter Davison, and if he wrote it, he's good. <laughs> he's good. But at the same time, I kind of wonder when he contacted, like, definitely Colin. Colin's like, oh, absolutely I'll do it, because he's been waving his fist at mm -hmm. Moffat and the BBC for not bringing in more of the old doctors. I mean, he's been really He's been on playing the part. He's really been on a rampage I, about that, I, that I, whole idea. I th yeah, I think he's been acting that up because he did the uh, Behind the Lens documentary on uh, the Day of the Doctor. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you've seen that. I no. haven't seen that one yet. I've is, that on, is that on the, I like, on the iPlayer or something? Yes. Uh, yes, it is, yes. And, and it's on YouTube as well. And it, it, he, does, he, he does the narration for it, but he says everything in terms of we, we're doing this, you know, we filmed that, whatever. And then there's a lovely moment in it where... It's not unusual for a documentary to break the fourth wall, but you actually get him as Colin Baker saying, I am the sixth doctor. And there's a real affection for it there. And I, I, I just kind of think he was he was playing up the five doctors reboot thing yeah. um, because they send themselves up so beautifully in that. It's so funny. And it, it, it does really kind of poke fun at that persona that he was putting across of, you know, how dare they do that without us in it, waving placards. I love that he locks his family in the house to watch Benzins on Varos. That's yeah. his favorite episode? <laughs> or maybe it's not, and that's... <laughs> Punishment? <laughs> Punishment, I don't know. And, of, and course, of, course, of course, as I'm going to sleep last night, I couldn't help but think about that. I kept thinking, gee, what would be my favorite? It wouldn't be that one. <laughs> As as you were as you went to sleep last night listening to your John Barrowman albums, yeah. <laughs> I I I thought that Moffat really did quite well on choosing who to include and who not to include. I mean, given that I'm not a fan of multi doctor stories anyway, I, it and, worked and, for and this. Yeah, I mean, it it, it worked it worked for the day of the Doctor. I thought because I I really liked that that interplay that we got. David Tennant just slipped straight back into the role perfectly, and having the the Tom Baker cameo done as not the fourth Doctor, um, but as this this caretaker character, big question mark, um, that worked really nicely. And of course, the five Doctors, the five ish Doctors reboot. Um, 
was just a, a, a completely different beast altogether. But the fact that they had the, the kind of privileged access to shoot those sequences as if they were under the sheets in the undercalory and all of that, it, it was it was wonderful. And they'd better damn well have put that on the DVD of Day of the Doctor because I want a copy of that. But yeah, they, they should. Have, they need to have the Night of the Doctor. They need to have. Um, that awful last day. They need to have the. Uh, they need to, one big package. Yeah, it's they gotta have the I, whole thing. And the, yeah, the five-ish doctors, of course. I mean, o- o- obviously, uh, an adventure in time and space has its own release, but that's been a real highlight for me. Of, of this oh week, God, I've seen that things. twice now, and I loved it both times. It's gorgeous, just very beautiful. Sad. Very sad, though. Very sad. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but but I also, I mean, there have been some great things on this week. The Science of Doctor Who was very entertaining. Um, Matthew Sweet's Me, You and Doctor Who, the, the culture show special. Do you see that? Haven't seen it yet. No. That's, also That's well player. worth watching. Yeah. But they should certainly stick that on the, the DVD or, or give it a DVD release somewhere. I mean, I don't normally watch the extras even on the, the kind of standard DVD releases. But these were these were really good kind of programs. I, I, I think we've had a... A great week, actually. Yeah, they they really took over the they really took over the BBC. Um, I was glad. I'm glad to see that the that uh, at least there was a lot of support from the BBC. You know, they recognized that this is a show of great cultural significance and enormous popularity, and they didn't just kind of like give it you know, secondhand or thirdhand treatment. I mean, they really went all out to to really give the show. Uh, the proper salute that it deserved, and world's largest audience for a simulcast. Um, yeah, uh, Guinness record that they broke. What was the record? I, I saw that the record had been broken, but I didn't know what it was. It was most number of people watching a yeah, drama I, program, but I don't know what the number of people. That's what was. I was wondering. Uh, what was the actual uh, final tally? I, I I don't know. I didn't read the article. <laughs> Just read the headlines. They go, yeah, okay, that makes sense. I mean, what else has ever done this except maybe a sporting event? And then this is a drama, so, quote, unquote. Um, okay, uh, I'm going to include something here, uh, one last thing. Uh, I've been badgering my daughter for some time to uh, marshal up her thoughts on episodes of Doctor Who because sometimes her opinions are very, very, very different from mine, uh, particularly since she has a crush on Matt Smith, um, a big crush on Matt Smith. And... Um, this time I got her to contribute, and uh, I'm going to play in a little uh, her brief review of Day of the Doctor. So this is an 11-year-old's point of view, Day of the Doctor. I think that Day of the Doctor is a good episode. First of all, it is the 50th anniversary episode celebrating 50 years of Doctor Who. In it, they bring together the current Doctor, Matt Smith, and former Doctor, David Tennant. They also had John Hurt as the Ninth Doctor because Christopher Eccleston wouldn't come back. John Hurt is first shown as the Doctor in Night of the Doctor, a mini-episode shown before the 50th. He is also known as the War Doctor. Unknown until now, he moves all the following Doctors one number higher, 9 to 10, 10 to 11, so on and so forth. In this episode, the Doctors revisit the Time War. They are brought together by the Moment, the device the Doctor used to destroy Gallifrey and the Daleks. The Moment tries to make the War Doctor change his mind about destroying Gallifrey. It, disguised as Bad Wolf Rose, shows him what he is to become if he does destroy Gallifrey. 
This is great because ever since Eccleston's time, the Doctor has been talking about the Time War, the destruction of his planet, and being the last of his kind. In the end, they bring all 13 Doctors, including Peter Capaldi, the newest Doctor, together to put Gallifrey in a status picture and make the Daleks destroy themselves in the crossfire of their own weapons. Overall, this episode is great for revisiting old friends and has a great story to go with the 50th anniversary of Doctor Who. You know, she does bring up, uh, she does bring up an important point that we didn't mention, and that is, uh, where is Gallifrey? Uh, yeah, I was kind of wondering about that, but I seem to remember Moffat, uh, as we were beginning to approach uh, the, the 50th, he went on to say that the series was going to take a really unique turn, especially uh, after Peter Capaldi takes over the part. And I kind of think this is this is what it is. I, I was wondering, well, what kind of turn is he talking about? Well, the quest for Gallifrey. It's Battlestar Galactica. Oh, wait. Yeah, I thought I thought it's it was Buck Battlestar Rogers. Galactica, and th- this was this was the other kind of thing that uh, maybe marred the ending a little bit for me. The whole idea that this change in the narrative was going to be finding Gallifrey, because I kind of hope he doesn't find Gallifrey. I love the war game, but overall, introducing the Time Lords and all that stuff, I don't think has been a great success. And I'd rather he just kind of let them stay in their bubble universe i think that that there is a a certain cynicism in writing that has destroyed the possibility there in in the war games the time lords are fine yeah they've got their weird their weird little laws and but but there are good reasons why you shouldn't be mucking about with time and it it seems that the time lords are upstanding and responsible and in the three doctors they come off as a bit desperate but the same beings it's it's only when we get to the deadly assassin that we start getting this narrative of well you know let's face it they're a bunch of pompous officious fools i rather like that episode oh the episode i love oh, the I, episode I, did too. I adore that episode but it puts the time lords on a different path and because if they were competent and if they were all powerful and whatnot then then the story wouldn't work it's a great story, but it sets the Time Lords up for this fall, and it just continues on and on. Every time that the Time Lords show up again, they get progressively... Flawed. Yes, to the, re- to the point where in Trial of a Time Lord, the Doctor gives his speech. You know, 10 billion years of absolute power is what it takes for a race to become absolutely corrupt. And, yeah, that's problematic. Just, it, just like in... Um, the end of time where Rassilon how could it be Rassilon uh, Rassilon's legions are ready to destroy time itself this this falls under that category of what is the stupidest thing a villain could do <laughs> oh, I'm going to destroy reality oh that's the Daleks I'm going to destroy time oh that's the time that's the ma- yeah. oh or the master take your pick uh, uh, master wants to control time well he did that's... in the beginning but towards the end he became totally insane well and, and, but yeah, you're right. It's that whole insane thinking. I mean, what, to, to what end? I mean, all you're doing is you're showing that you're completely bonkers. I felt that Moffat was trying in this episode. I felt that he was trying to distance the high command from the high council and make Gallifrey less insane. Uh, so that if, if, if they ever decide to bring Gallifrey back, and they certainly don't need to, but if they ever need to bring Gallifrey back, they can discard the nutty high council stuff and you know do, go go a different direction at least try to salvage them but but ultimately i i think much though i'd like to see time lords 
in a way. Um, it, it probably best left wherever they are. But clearly Tom Baker's new doctor, Nude Baker, thinks that he's going to find it. I kind of got that out of that little last yes, speech. I mean, they, well, speech, they, I say, but more of a sort of over-the-top kind of crazy rambling. But, maybe, maybe he'll be looking for Gallifrey but never find it, which is perhaps better, but it still doesn't set my heart alight. But then since then I've been thinking a couple of things. I mean, one is maybe it doesn't matter that much because we'll still just have the Doctor wandering around. After all, in the first story he says... We'll go back someday. Yes, we'll go back. Well, he knows that because he's working on that calculation. <laughs> yeah, except that his time stream was out of sync, so he won't have remembered it. Good point. But, um, <laughs> but uh, uh, also, more optimistically, perhaps, the change in narrative might not just be that. There might be something else, because there's a strong theme, as you'd expect in a, in a 50th anniversary story about age, but also about adulthood and the fact that We've had these doctors who didn't grow up, and we've had John Hurt's war doctor with the young eyes saying maybe it's time for him to grow up. And we know we've got an, a new doctor who has been cast, who is older than the kind of more recent actors we've had. And so maybe we are going to see a shift in that, in the characterization of the doctor and, and the nature of it, away from the, the, the kind of juvenilia and the the kind of um, almost, um, how would you put, well, Juvenile. childish, yeah, childish. For, want, for want of a better word, you know, the, the, the timey-wimey stuff and all this, which I've liked well enough. But if, we, if we're looking for a shift in something, well, I mean, Doctor Who, it's always changing. That's what makes it the show it is. It never stays the same. So that, that's certainly a change that I would be very interested to see how it develops. Do you think that we're going to, instead of now having survival, survivor's guilt angst uh, that's been traumatizing the Doctor for the first part of the, the new series, do you think we'll now be experiencing, um, gosh, this is my last regeneration, next time I'm dead kind of thing? Is that, that, part, of, is that part of this process? Where, because they do say in, in high command when all There's 13 the 12, of them. No, he says all 13 of him. Which would fit with Time Possibly. Lord mythology. That's all of them. The new I mean, Mo Tom Baker. Moffat, yeah. Mo Moffat has actually backed up the theory that says the Metacrisis Doctor used up a regeneration. So maybe he's going to deal with this one at Christmas. Who knows? Hmm. I guess that's possible. Which was the Metacrisis Doctor? Is that in Rose's paper cut, cut out Doctor? That, that's the one, yes, in Journey's End. Well, yeah, yeah, I suppose, yeah. Of course, we got the influx from River Song as well, so who knows what... Part, yeah. part, of, part of me still thinks it's going to be really hard to make an interesting story after that. Best just ignore it. I think that's what they'll do. I think they'll just occasionally pop up and go, Oh, I found a clue where Gallifrey might be. Let's find well, it, one and they'll thing, find Daleks. One thing to remember, though, uh, there was a very interesting scene during this uh, temporal projection that... Uh, the, the the likeness of Rose was giving everybody towards the end. And that is, I mean, one moment we see it's night, uh, there's, there's fire, laser blast, buildings crashing down all over the place. It looks like it's about the end. And then all of a sudden, everybody wakes up, the sky is blue, it's quiet. I mean, there's rubble all over the place, but everybody coming out, hey, my God, they lived through the night. Hey, was the sky blue? Yeah, it was. It's supposed Not to be red. orange. Not yeah, red, or... yeah. But, the, but they all come out. And it's like, we lived, we survived. And I kind of got the feeling that was a flash forward as to 
what would happen once Gallifrey is freed from this stasis, because as far as they're concerned, they're in a state of non-existence. They will be completely unaware of any passage of time from when the doctors threw them into stasis to the point where they get then get released. I think that's the moment of when they get released. Could be. That Could we be. just saw. That, that's what I took from it. It's pretty clear that the doctor doesn't think that, though. I mean, he he is of the... Until Tom Baker talks to him, he's well, of he the thought impression... It, he we thought it probably know. failed. We don't know. He had no idea. So if, if he had taken that as being Bad Wolf Rose moment, Bad Wolf Rose moment, um, projecting what is to be, then he would know that, that they... Or maybe maybe that was all they needed just to get it, uh, just to have a sense of hope that, you know, there really truly is another way. And it was it, it, then it took Clara, for her to see that, and to say, you know, do, do, you be the doctor. Oh, yeah, speaking of that one scene, the John Hurt, great job all across the board, except for when he slaps his head and he goes, oh! Yeah. Thing, that didn't, he didn't come that, off. That one, didn't, that one didn't pull off for me. Yeah. I, I didn't care for that. That that seemed a little little weird. I, I would have been much happier if Tenet's doctor had caught it first too, because I think I would have. I think it would have made more sense that it was kind of psychically making the rounds. Yeah, going downhill. Yeah, something <laughs> nicely put. <laughs> so, um, uh, anything else, gentlemen? Anything else you want to bring up about the story or the episode or or the celebration or? Um, well, since, I mean, since we got to the ending of it, what do you think about the new theme tune? Is it the new theme tune, or is it just a one-off? I think it's a one-off. Yeah, I, it's all. I yeah, it's all right. I'd be kind of annoyed that they had a brand new theme song for series seven, and then yet another brand new theme song for series eight. Did they change the music in seven? I didn't spot that. They did. Oh, they did. It's a little bit different. Um, I thought this was quite different. But... This is quite different. This one is. Um, I don't know. Um, I'm. I always like a new theme tune, so yeah. But you know, every if you got a good one, um, I, I I really didn't think that there was any particular need for them to change the theme when uh, John Nathan Turner took over. I, I, I still thought the uh, I still thought the <laughs> oh, original no, was the, the uh, theme was the better one. Um, I, I agree that it wouldn't go with the Starfield credits flying by, but uh, um, so I'm not. And all of a sudden, I've got Sylvester McCoy's opening credits running through my head, and I'm just, I'm just nauseous. That, that I think we can agree was uh, not the show's finest moment. No. <laughs> in, in many different ways. All right. Well, um, the 50th anniversary of Doctor Who. How many other shows can say that in the history of the world? Well, no other shows can show, say it's the 50th anniversary of Doctor Who. But I mean, how many other shows can show it's there? 50th anniversary big deal big deal for us nerdy fans yeah of course Moffat Moffat himself being the one saying you know and theoretically this really isn't the 50s because you idiots at the Beeb decided to cancel the show at some point you know I dare you to cancel it on my watch (laughs) Uh you know there's people at the BBC who'd still like to cancel it I'm sure absolutely they haven't all died off yet um there's some gray DNA floating around there somewhere. Oh, God, you have to bring up that name again. <laughs> Who? Somebody took a pop at him at the after show. At Michael Grade? Yes. Really? 
Yes, I think it might have been Moffat. It was either Moffat or maybe it was one of right, the right Moffat because Moffat's Moffat's just been furious at the fact that this truly isn't the fiftieth since you've had that entire span where the show was off the air. I mean, only I mean, I suppose you could say that it is the fiftieth because you've had fandom keeping it alive he, through through uh, their own form of audio, you know, fiction being a big finish or or a fanfic. Yeah, I think he did say we had seventeen years stolen from us or something like that. By Michael Grade, something like that. I think that I think that is what he said, but not putting putting words in his mouth. Gentlemen, um, thank you for joining me. Oh, pleasure. Been a pleasure. And uh, we'll be back with our regularly scheduled episode of Fusion Patrol next week. And until then, I hope you'll join me all again on Fusion Patrol. Cheers. Fusion Patrol is a Lone Locust production. Like us, leave us a review on iTunes. Or stop by and visit at our website, fusionpatrol.com. Find us on Facebook or Twitter. Search for Fusion Patrol. Or just drop us a note at feedback at fusionpatrol.com. Our music is Fight the Future by Amber Wolf. <laughs>